Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the uh, Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore's webinar on Myanmar and Egypt, how the military's economic interests complicate political transition. What I hope that we're going to be doing today is something more experimental or exploratory, if you wish, and uh, in a sense, venture into uncharted ground. We've got two very prominent uh, scholars with us, uh, Professor Hitwe Hitwe Tien of Curtin University in uh, Australia, who is an expert on business and economic development in Myanmar, as well as the military's economic interests. And we have Dr. Yazid Sayek, who in my mind is one of the world's foremost experts on civil military relations in the Middle East and who has done a lot of work on Egypt and Turkey, among others. And what I'm hoping that we can tease out, and there are obviously many more examples for this, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, uh, perhaps Algeria, uh, where you have uh, a history of military rule or military intervention, and in which one of the drivers of that intervention or rule were the economic interests of the military. And so what I'm hoping that we're going to be able to do as much with the presentations of our two honored guests, as well as in the uh, Q&A and discussion, tease out what the differences and what the, um, uh, what the similarities are and what we may be able to learn from that. Uh, anybody who has questions or comments, uh, you can raise your hand uh, and we will give you the floor as soon as we've um, gone through the presentations and maybe an initial Q&A. So if I can turn over the virtual floor to you, Hitwe, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you, Professor James. Um, very honored to be here. So my topic is on the military coup in Myanmar and and it's aptly titled Taking Care of Business. So my name is Tui Tui Thane, Associate Professor at School of Management, Curtin University, Perth. Um, so I'm in Perth um, talking, I'm not in Myanmar. Um, so, right, so this, my hypothesis like many others is that the, the first February coup in Myanmar is partly about protecting the economic interest of the military elite. So from the political power gained in that 20 years period, economic power, and that in turn has given uh, military the interest to regain the political power. So the military interest rests in these two um, conglomerates, which we are now looking at. Okay, so why economic interest is so important? Because in Myanmar, we have this saying, so that when I was writing it, this saying came to me. You know, I grew up with my mom probably used this, this uh, learned it from her. You can touch the top, the bun top of my head, but you can't you don't dare touch the wallet tucked away in my waist. So in that sense, this landslide victory of the NLD in the um, 2020 election 
given them this, uh, uh, you know, uh, a power to indicate that this um, military political interest is now diluted. So if that parliament on the 1st February went ahead, the, the speculations are that the political interest is now diluted, of course, because it's a big landslide victory by the NLD, that in turn will dilute economic power of the military as well. Um, so why? Because there's some indications from the NLD that this uh, term, the new term, uh, is to partly to demilitarize the country's bureaucracy, the government, for example, um, so this department called the General Administration Department, which is under Home Affairs, has now come under NLD, civilian control. That's very significant because this GAD has the power to appoint key uh, um, bureaucratic positions. So if, if that if the, the, the military has lost this power, then the bureaucracy will be slowly filled with um, NLD members, democratic, democratic, democratically inclined members. So that's um, a, a kind of damaging to the military's economic interest. And also NLD has a few times indicated that they wanted to change the mining laws, for example, to, to give um, a, a small medium enterprises uh, a, a right to mine rather than currently dominated by the military, the crony companies, um, militia groups, ethnic, uh, ethnic militia groups and Chinese businesses. So it's, it's a very much dominated, very lucrative. And some reports that it's you know, nearly as big as the country's economy or half of it is extremely lucrative, but very much monopolized by um, the military and its associates. So that the, the, the NLD indicated a few times to loosen this uh, uh, military grip on this very lucrative jade mining north of the country. Okay, so the prominent role of the military as protector in a nationalist sense. So I just wanna go back one minute to see the mindset, the military mindset in this, you know, throughout the history. So he has a, occupied a prominent role in the nationalist sense in military's head, then their mentality set, and also in, we've been trained also, we've been taught that the military was our protector in the nation. Definitely played a definitely a big, you know, important role in our, the Myanmar's anti-colonial movement against the British. And since the gaining of um, independence from the British, the military also has been in fighting with ethnic uh, insurgencies. Then we had a very brief period of parliamentary period and then the military coup in 1960, which introduced Myanmar um, way to socialism. And that has brought in, as has brought the economy down to its knees and then considered to be one of the poorest nation on earth. 
And then after that, we have since 1988-89, we have again, military, SLOC, and uh, SBDC remained in their power. So in that sense, we've been under military rule for two decades, right? Up until 2011. So that along that way, the successive governments as SLOG, as BTC have paved the way, making sure the permanent and dominant rule of the military as the military returned to the barracks. So these conglomerates, two conglomerates, how did they come about? In 1988-89, when the, uh, the, the, the system changed to socialist system to marketization. So the word marketization was used. It's a particular you know, economic term, but it was so much used and widespread that you, know, you ask a taxi driver, you, they know. So we are in the age of marketization, meaning opening up Myanmar to international trade. So when that happened, military saw the opportunity to modernize the economy and to exploit, to, to take advantage of this um, a foreign direct investment coming in, um, you know, to, to make money, to support the welfare of the retired uh, military personnel, and as well, as well as active serving military personnel, especially the top brass. So they have their own, um, uh, you know, uh, shares in these uh, conglomerates. So in that context of marketization, these two conglomerates born and prospered, but that context characterized, characterized by two. Immediately Myanmar, soon as it opened, unfortunately went under military, uh, um, US sanctions under the Clinton administration. That has pushed Myanmar to work with neighboring, um, neighboring countries, including Singapore, Malaysia, and China. So that, that period where um, Myanmar didn't have Western friends under the isolations move, so the, 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 the development of the economy very uh, skewed towards um, working with Asian, um, Asian businesses, and are also pushed towards mining, you know, um, oil and gas, uh, jade mining, land grabbing, this sort of, um, you know, unproductive and uh, damaging to ordinary people, um, th th this sort of uh, initiatives happened. So in that, in that particular um, context, these two were born to serve, to uh, cement the a dominant position of the military. So very quickly, how they raise capital. So through, first through um, privatization of state-owned enterprises in the 90s and in two waves, in fire sale, very untransparent uh, nature, and the, the, the nation's properties, land went to military-owned conglomerates, and also the government's uh, associates, close associates, and now they are known as cronies. Even a little kid on the street knows what crony means and who are the cronies. So it's a crony capitalism is born. And these conglomerates were so uh, um, a big monopolies that 
anyone wanted to do business had to go through them and also import and export license which were very lucrative very expensive so were controlled by them and for example a, a rice trading import of vehicles um, mobile phone licenses so through this rent seeking um, these conglomerates and cronies um, made money and the land uh, grabbing, it, it's, it's very common as well for mining, for agricultural, and of course, these sort of mining opportunities up in the north. When the, the military was able to negotiate ceasefire agreements in the ethnic areas, so this mining opportunity came up and then very much uh, uh, well exploited. Right. So we have to um, now the pressure, under pressure, to cut military, uh, uh, to cut ties with military link businesses. So the highlighter was the, the uh, uh, two UN fact-finding mission reports, especially the second one entitled The Economic Interest of the Military highlighted how military um, conglomerates were dominant and who were they and the foreign companies, those are working with these conglomerates in a direct joint ventures or indirect, you know, through other third party, second party associations. So you have that, that was a highlighter of how military fund is funding itself. So we have pressure from both now international and domestic. So they've been talking about two things, but not without the third thing. Okay, what's the two things? The assets of the top military generals, visa band, whereas a lot of people are saying visa band, what that means is can't have holiday in Europe, ha ha ha, who cares, right? You can go to uh, uh, other countries, Dubai or you know, Asia. As okay, so assets freeze, I don't uh, condemn it as much because it asset freeze is effective because of these top military generals, they own so much widespread and their freeze, it, it has some impact. But what they should be focusing on in designing targeted sanctions is the two military conglomerates and hasn't been much talk about it. So uh, hopefully they will get to that, but not much signed at the moment. So, okay, so it's the international pressures, but what is also encouraging, of course, is the domestic pressure. Domestic, so unlike in 1988, our Generation Z, this, not my generation, I'm older, but there are generations who are leading this movement is that, um, you know, they, 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 they are very in innovative and then they are resist uh, uh, resilient. So you have this move, two movements going first, the civil disobedience movement, which regime military coup leaders didn't expect that that was a, a surprise to them. So now they are boycotting they boy, uh, the CDM movement is boycotting any products and services that even remotely associated with the military from a hospital to restaurants, to a, a rice brands, to oil, anything. And inside the country, you've got the list. And these days, I also heard a few days ago, you have an app as well on your phone. You check whether this brand is under the boycott list. So that sort of innovations are also happening. And also lately you have 
another thing called social punishment movement that if you are associated with the military, you get socially punished, meaning um, that that's happening in uh, outside Myanmar, that they, they you know, could be that visa cancels that we push for that, you know, socially, you won't be uh, invited to a you know, monastery event or something. Um, so they'd be exposed in social media. Um, and and uh, they won't sell you things inside the country. So they were saying these brands, right? Um, Red Ruby brand or something, are you still using it? You know, don't use it. So I think this sort of kind of healthy to say that not just we are relying on external international force, we have also now a significant, you know, a communication by social media and a pushback inside the country as well. So way forward. So this coup has brought this convergence that this political interest and um, uh, economic interests are tied and a, a move forward to democracy, this too has to be dismantled. As um, uh, Professor James just said, we're gonna see, you know, after Professor Yeezy's presentation, you know, what we have in terms of what we learned from this Myanmar case and how we can uh, move forward. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hitchwood. Uh, that was a fascinating presentation, which raises all kinds of questions in my mind, which hopefully we will come to after Yazid has spoken. Yazid, the floor is yours. Is it, can you hear me? Your, I think your microphone is off. Hello? Is it? I think Yazid is having some technical difficulties. Uh, if, I, if I may then just briefly follow up on what something you, a situation you sort of described at the very beginning, which was that when you had the beginning of the process of democratization in 2011, uh, what you see often in transitions is that successful transitions are the result of some, uh, some degree of cooperation between the military and civil uh, society. And that ultimately the, uh, the transition period really is a compromise. And the focus in those periods is often on the political transition rather than the economic transition. So the question that really arises is uh, if you're not uh, endangering the whole transition process, if you don't start addressing the um, uh, 
the economic uh, issues up front. I think we've got Yazid back. So let's reserve this question till after Yazid has spoken, because I'm quite sure that Yazid has some things to say on that too. Thanks, James. Thanks also for the invitation. And it's great uh, uh, to, 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 to be involved in this uh, Middle East Institute activity. I visited many, many years ago, about 30 years ago. So it's, it's good to have a, a new, uh, re to reconnect. I apologize for, for disappearing. Um, my Zoom app decided to do something very annoying uh, that more or less shut me out while I was trying to sort out my virtual background. So now I've got a different background. So what I'm going to do is um, in fact, uh, look at Egypt and Turkey. So the direct comparison I'm making is not between Egypt and Myanmar, but rather between Egypt and Turkey in order to maybe offer insights to how we think about Myanmar or how we think about either case. In other words, how the uh, role of the military's economic interests uh, impedes political transition or whether it can be uh, leveraged in any way. What needs to be done, in other words, in order to remove this as an important uh, political factor in how the military behaves. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm, I haven't, I wasn't able to prepare a full PowerPoint presentation. However, I'm going to show you uh, the, the, the first uh, slide, which gives you a sense of the main, uh, the three main points I want to make. And I'll discuss each in a little bit of detail and then leave you know, the rest for, for open discussion. So the first point I'm making here is that how the military has approached business activities, whether formal, informal, legal, illegal, uh, commercial or industrial, etc., is very much a part of what the country's dominant economic model is. Uh, the two are not unrelated. The military develop their interests in a particular setting with its own laws, regulation, tax uh, laws, etc. Uh, and, and so it, 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 it emerges within this setting and then maneuvers around it. Um, the second point I'm making clearly is that uh, the nature, the form, as well as the extent of the military's political role is a function of its relation with various social forces or classes, if you like, including the private sector, the business community. This is another way of saying that uh, the political economy matters of who owns what, what they use it for, how they access economic resources and economic opportunity, and therefore what is the balance of interest between the military's businesses and other social actors, including the private sector, that um, operate in the economy and that also seek and pursue their own uh, interests. Um, so this is what I see as, as uh, if you like, the social dimension. And then there's a political dimension of how, what the net outcome is of economic and business calculations, whether the military is efficient economically or simply predatory, uh, whether it uh, competes equally with other actors in the economy or whether it uh, uses its powerful political position to take what it wants, regardless of economic efficiency, of public financial efficiency, and uh, of the impacts on the economy as a whole and on sectors such as the private sector. Um, where all that comes together is, of course, the political dimension, the kind of negotiations and compromises that the military might reach 
with other actors, whether within the state or outside the state. And again, if we look at uh, Egypt and Turkey, that's very evident, as it is in other countries such as, say, Pakistan or uh, Chile and others. So to, to touch on the economic dimension straight away, um, the, I, I'm going to obviously have to summarize very brutally here. Uh, Turkey and Egypt started at a comparable level of development in the 1950s. Both also adopted some of the uh, prevalent economic models of that time, such as import substituting industrialization. But they then diverged. And this is where immediately gets very interesting. Turkey adopted an, a capitalist path to development, but also involving a focus on state assistance to the development of the private sector, especially in manufacturing. So there was still an emphasis on industrialization, but the state provided a major industrial fund to help businesses and where there was a lot of consultation with various business associations and lobbies on trade policy, for instance. And this allowed the emergence of several very large conglomerates. This is like the Korean Hebels or you know, comparable large uh, holding companies in Japan and elsewhere. Um, and the, uh, the, the military incidentally uh, the military businesses eventually emerged as the fourth largest or one of the four large conglomerates in, in Turkey. Uh, the second thing to say about the Turkish economy is it's well glo globalized, i.e. this means it's integrated into global value chains by its local content, uh, value added and so on. Um, and there's high levels of market integration. This means that people in Turkey, different groups, individuals, social groups, um, uh, are active in the market. And so there's a higher level of production of wealth and uh, the accumulation of domestic savings and surplus and so on. All of which is to say that Turkey was building itself up as a middle income country at a time when Egypt was still lagging behind. Uh, the other point I wanna make before moving to Egypt on the economic dimension is that the Turkish military was consciously committed to this Non -cap uh, this capitalist path of development based on state assistance for the private sector and on industrialization. And it only stepped in when it felt that social and political struggles between the right and left, between labor unions and employers had reached dangerous levels that it stepped in, took power, uh, reasserted stability, and then gave power back to civilians who it felt would uh, continue to pursue that economic model. Um, if I now turn to Egypt, the contrast is very striking. Egypt early on shifted to a non-capitalist path to development, what is sometimes known as Arab socialism or state capitalism. Uh, there was extensive nationalization in 1961 and state-led industrialization, uh, which continued for about 30 years. And then two waves of privatization happens starting in 1991. But this was partial and left the state still very much in control of the economy, whether directly through tax and customs and trade policy or indirectly by controlling licensing and regulation. So in effect, although the economy is now 70-75% run and owned by the private sector, in reality, the state still controls all economic activity. Sorry, activity. 
Um, so there's a big difference there. And it's within that context that the Egyptian military developed its own business interest. The military lacked any economic vision, unlike Turkey. It didn't have any clear views on policy, didn't intervene in policy until 10 years ago with the revolution that removed the president, Hosni Mubarak. And it's only then that the Egyptian military uh, started to really scale up in a big way. What until then was a, a small enclave, a relatively small enclave of a few key businesses. It, it ran very inefficiently. Um, and it's only really since 2013 that it's gained a major role in economic and business activity under the new president, Sisi, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. So the point is that it has now become a major economic actor. It delivers at least a quarter of all public works. It uh, delivers a lot of public procurement. Uh, so it, it, in other words, it, it captures contracts given out by government agencies. And instead of going to public sector companies or private sector companies, the military takes over these contracts and delivers them, often using the private sector as subcontractors, but then making a big profit margin as the intermediary. So this kind of military economy is predatory to a large degree. Uh, it's rentier. In other words, it, it gains its income by uh, thanks to its occupying a position of political power the ability to award contracts and then to pass on contracts, rather than generating actual productivity increases or technological innovation or other uh, uh, kinds of sustainable economic growth elements. So we have two quite radically opposite or divergent uh, economic models here, both of the economy as a whole and of the military economy within it. Now, I need to move on a bit. So I've, I've set the stage for the key issue, of course, which is the economic dimension. The question then is, how does this play out socially and politically? Briefly, the Turkish model over the many years since the 1950s resulted in the growth of a very large middle class, uh, a lot of it autonomous from the state. In other words, not dependent on state salaries by being employed in the civil service or in teaching or public health and so on. And because industry was assisted by the state but remained in private hands. So the private sector emerged in what you might think of as a normal profile, i.e. a fair number of large companies a very large number of medium-sized companies and also a very large number of quite you know, uh, significant small and, and, and small and micro enterprises uh, with a very large middle class. And because Turkey followed neoliberal economic reforms, free market reforms starting in the 1980s, and also was given privileged access to the European Union from 1992, the Turkish economy not only evolved and grew rapidly and diversified, but this middle class also diversified. So you had an even larger number of people emerging in what was known as the Anatolian bourgeoisie. In other words, these were people who were more conservative, Islamist leaning in terms of their political and social beliefs, and who became a, a parallel or rival uh, middle class that became the voting base for the party that eventually took power in 2002, the AKP, 
party of president of current president Erdogan, who has held on to power for nearly two decades now, thanks to this major shift in social class. Egypt, on the other hand, uh, because of state control, and although the private sector formally accounts for the much larger share of the economy, in reality, the private sector is almost entirely dependent still on access to state contracts for public works and public procurement. And therefore political connections, personal connections and bribes are how business is done. This means that there has been little investment in innovation, in increased productivity. Uh, most Egyptian companies are very local. In fact, statistics have shown, conducted by the World Bank and others, that only 1% of all Egyptian companies outside of farms, only 1% of 2 million enterprises can count as large or medium enterprises. 99% count as small or micro or nano enterprises. In other words, someone standing on a street corner selling sandwiches. This is a highly distorted profile of a, of a private sector. This also translates into a middle class that is extremely heavily dependent on state welfare, state employment, state subsidies. And so the result of uh, this is a middle class that is not autonomous of the state, a private sector that has a parasitical relationship to the state. Neither of them provide a source of political opposition or of political autonomy from those who govern, who rule the state. And so, this takes me to my final wrapping up points about the, the political implications. Um, the sources of political change don't come from a vacuum. They're not some abstract idea of democracy or whatever. We have to ask who are the social forces that stand to benefit from one political mode or another one, and which are the ones that are likely to be committed to invest their source resources, their lives, to bringing about specific kinds of political change, whether good or bad, democratic or anti-democratic. In the case of Turkey, a massive middle class emerged that uh, wasn't so dependent on the state and therefore endorsed uh, democratization and also the brought for the first time ever an Islamic uh, leaning party to power. In Egypt, uh, we have the opposite situation. So where does the military economy finally uh, affect the outcome? Well, in Turkey, the military own, as I said earlier, uh, a very large holding company called Oyak, which has 60 companies or so within it. However, these companies are red, formally registered like normal companies. They operate, they are run by civilians, operate entirely as private sector companies subject to the same laws, taxes, customs duties, and also have to submit to open competition, regulation, oversight, etc. So the military hasn't used its privileged position to give itself market advantages that everyone else is denied. And in that sense, its military economy is not actually a military economy. It's simply, uh, you know, that the military have a share, let's say, in uh, viable civilian companies. Um, now, they've been unwilling to give that up, but at least uh, they don't uh, alter policy to suit themselves. In Egypt, on the other hand, the military, which owns all military businesses and defense industry companies and has huge stakes 
increasing now even in areas like cement production, steel production, that were dominated almost entirely by the private sector or by private and public se sector civilian companies, the military has rejected bringing its businesses under any form of civilian control or oversight, doesn't pay any taxes, customs duties or others, uh, provides no access to its financial books or its bank accounts, um, and therefore there's no real evidence that is actually cost effective for the public purse. Um, and really, it, uh, it has made it very clear that it's unwilling to dismantle any part of its uh, economic empire in order to allow either economic efficiency or normal civilian oversight. So what we have in Egypt then is the emergence of a major military stake in the economy that will make it far more reluctant than ever before to share power, something that it might have been willing to do in the early months of 2011 after the revolution, when it said, we want to preserve what we already have, but was, had not yet drastically expanded its share of the economy. But under President Sisi, its role has now become central to setting policy, even in areas like digitization and so on. So I'll stop there in order to allow a lot more time for discussion. Thank you, Yuzi. That was extremely helpful. Um, I would like to invite uh, participants to please raise your hand and ask questions. And while you do so, let me rephrase the question that I um, uh, that I put to uh, Hitwe while uh, Yazid was offline briefly. It strikes me, listening to both of you, that you come to almost contradictory conclusions. Uh, with other words, very schematically, Turkey, in a sense, is a success story of economic development. Myanmar is a story of having failed to address economic interests at the beginning of the political transition. And Egypt is a story that where the military takeover was, in, in a sense, the catalyst for the emergence of a, of a, of a, uh, of a military economy or an, or an economy with um, the military having very significant interests. And so the question is, in a sense, can we draw any conclusions at all? Israel, do you want to go first? Well, hearing um, Turkish success stories, if the coup hasn't happened, you know, military kept the permanent 25%, kept on, uh, operating the two conglomerates. And perhaps we, if we had gone down the path of restructuring them, because since 2016, these conglomerates have become under the um, Company Act. So they claim this, they have become a normal companies, but of course, a lot of reforms to put through. So if they had done that, perhaps, you know, the military probably will hope for this Turkish model. The, the conglomerates are still quite a big players alongside other private companies. Could have been possible that way. They still control, but sharing, a bit more sharing. But now the, the Egyptian model will be what the military will be hoping for in their dreams. So 
that will be my comparisons. Yossi, do you want to add, add something? Well, maybe as a way of opening this up even more widely, um, uh, we had, you know, the three of us, James uh, and Jan, and myself, um, an interesting discussion a few days ago about sort of this, that I was very struck about how Myanmar as, you know, a developing country that had been under embargo for a long while with, you know, low socioeconomic development indicators and so on, um, over the past decade had very rapidly started to acquire many of the appearances and trappings of a uh, a more vibrant economy uh, and, and, you know, in terms of consumer habits and per capita income and so on. Um, and that struck me for a country that, you know, had, had, had suffered in, in the way it had and where the military uh, had played such a dominant political role as well as a predatory economic one. And it's interesting partly because in, in, in Burma and in Myanmar, sorry, um, the in a way, it looks like the, there is a significant presence of business people, of private sector businesses and businessmen or businesswomen who um, have some autonomy from the government, from, from state, the state and from the military and who either were partners of the military, business partners and or political partners or could stand in opposition. Whereas in Egypt, you have none of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's very striking that 60 years after the military first took power and created the Republic in 1952, and having gone through various stages of uh, political management and even of some privatization, and officially being committed to a free market economy with massive connections with the West, uh, a lot of Western aid and so on. And yet it's very much an economy that first of all is poorly globalized, um, and that, um, sorry, James, I'm having a little bit of issue with my video again, um, no, no, no. an economy that's poorly globalized, but also where um, big businessmen in Egypt don't form a distinct business class. They have no political clout. They can't negotiate collectively with the president, let's say, and push for particular demands. They're marginalized, they're held at arm's length, and they're very much at the pleasure of the president. If they go too far in any direction, they will be punished. And the president will use audit agencies as a weapon to open up you know, criminal investigations, whether justified or not. So this is very different than the situation in Turkey where I described the emergence of major business players and economic and social classes that were a counterweight to the military and to the state. And it's also very different to Chile where you know the military took power in 1973 to get rid of a socialist government uh, and then eventually in the 1980s the military's closest allies big business and the christian democratic party were the people who turned the military and said we love you you helped us out the economy is doing great now we've all done well it's time for you to go back to the barracks they led the pushback um, and it's so fascinating that, of course, there's nothing like that in Egypt, but in, in Myanmar, there's not quite the Chile situation, but nonetheless, uh, the existence of significant social and business actors that, that, that have some autonomy. And that, that's a fascinating insight. No, indeed, I, I, I think it is. And it's, it's, 
it's also interesting to me that you know that that indeed the, the Turkish military, but Turkey as such, and I wonder whether the influence of having been a member of NATO, having been a member of the Council of Europe, played a played a played a role in in sort of shaping the 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 path that Turkey undertook, which is is very different from from others. Um, the question, of course, arises then that, in a sense, if you ever were to come to a transition uh, in Egypt, you would essentially be confronted with the same question that Myanmar was confronted in 2011, 2012, that unless you address the military economic interests, you're not going to get a successful transition. Hmm. Um, I, and, and one of, I, either both of you are one of you may want to respond to that, but I also want to encourage people in the, among the audience to please come forward with your own questions and comments. Does either, does, either, does either of you want to sort of address the issue of the transition? Yes, so for, for Aung San Suu Kyi, what has been difficult to, you know, in her attempts to change the constitution. So, so, so long as this uh, permanent, you know, 25% seats for the militaries uh, preserved, then her hands are tight in terms of, you know, um, economic development and any reforms. But also Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD um, party a lot of them were um, ex-political prisoners. So their capabilities, while they're politically democratic, but their capabilities to look after, to lead, to spearhead these uh, ministries is quite limited. So that has been a major criticism as well as the, 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 the cap capabilities of the bureaucrats in NLD has been very limited and that's where Business, business, uh, businesses have, you know, encounter stumbling blocks after stumbling blocks. But yet, you know, when the coup happened, who came out to the street? Middle classes, you know, up until the, the violent crackdown came, and then all these, uh, you know, people you know, disappeared. And of course, now that the very militant, and a lot of them are working class uh, uh, workers, they're there. So um, they did try, but the, the, the capability is limited. What, James, what are please, no, please go ahead. No, 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 sorry, sorry, no, please go ahead. No, 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 please, please do, Yazid. Well, as, as, I mean, this, this goes on a slightly different direction, but um, on the issue of transition, I think with Egypt, what is really worrying, and this clearly doesn't apply in the case of Myanmar, quite the opposite, and that's why it's interesting, that since the military took power in 2013 and then Sisi became president a few months later, what the military and various uh, intelligence services have done is to eliminate very radically all possible political or social contenders. Um, there are a few political parties, they are tiny, very marginal, they're only the ones that the regime hasn't felt it necessary to formally ban or outlaw. Um, they have no role whatsoever. Uh, parliament is stuffed with the president's men and people hand chosen by the military and intelligence services. 
So there is no political arena in Egypt. And as I suggested earlier, even big business is, they operate as individuals negotiating their own personal deals with the military or with the president, rather than acting as a, as a social group or class. What this means is that the president and the military have no one to negotiate transition with, even if they had a, a willingness for a transition. And that's what's dangerous is that in Egypt, the success of the regime in eliminating all its rivals or potential contenders means that it's also eliminated anyone it can negotiate with. And that suggests that should the regime, the system reach uh, what is known as a system crisis, you know, a fundamental breakdown of say the economy or public finances or whatever, then if then they start looking around for people to talk to, they'll have individuals here and there, but there are no organized groups of any significance to help in uh, ensuring a peaceful and orderly transition. And that's a very dangerous situation to be in. Right, I, I wanna come back to this. I saw Gerard McCarthy twice briefly uh, raise a hand. I don't know if he wanted to ask a question or not. But if you do, Gerard, please go ahead. Let's see, I'm, I'm not sure he heard me or uh, we'll, he'll probably come back. I mean, one, one, one of the interesting questions, certainly in, in, in what you described, Yazid, in Egypt is that what it really, me it really means is, and it's a question of then of sustainability, that for foreign direct investment, there really is very limited opportunity, um, energy, real estate, but there really isn't an, an a lot of opportunity in a structure in which you don't have uh, a, a private sector with of, of, of any significance and depth in that sense. There's really very little opportunity for, for foreign direct investment. And the question is, how long is that sustainable? That's a very good question. Um, for Egypt, um, it is, you, you've put your finger on something very real. Um, first of all, foreign direct investment has been slowing over the last three years, despite a lot of hype around Egypt as being one of the best performers in the region in terms of economic growth. And uh, the, I, the IMF, World Bank, Western governments all you know, play, play this hype game. Uh, but when you look at the reality of, of the real economy, uh, you know, the, the, the state of individual economic sectors, there, the picture is very different. There's very low productivity, little uh, value added or local content, and very little uh, investment, both domestic and foreign. In fact, one of the most striking indicators is that the share of private sector investment uh, capital investment out of GDP, the gross economy, in other words, is lower today than it was during the so-called socialist phase of the 1960s. That really tells you something about how the private sector feels about the economy in Egypt. And foreign investment, 75% of all foreign investment, which uh, has been going into the energy sector specifically, with a bit into tourism and real estate, and almost none into the rest of the productive economy. That tells you again, a lot about how people view the economy. 
It tells you that foreign investment is going into the easy, quick profit areas, uh, low risk, where you know energy is, is is mostly in desert areas controlled by the military, where foreign investors are sure of protection. Um, and what this finally means is that Egypt relies absolutely on a constant injection of big amounts of capital, of money from foreign sources motivated by political reasons and not uh, because of economic viability. So um, since the military coup d'etat, conservative Gulf monarchies invested something like $25 billion of cash and oil assistance to Egypt in the first year and a half. The IMF has given Egypt to date $18 billion in loans and so on. So, um, and, and a lot of the private investment that goes into Egypt actually goes to buying government bonds and certificates which, which are offered at rates like 13, 15% interest. These are you know, not viable in terms of Egyptian economic performance. So Egypt has to keep bringing in new sources of hard currency, for instance, from worker remittances or tourism, which right now is very low, in order to pay off these rates. It's a sort of Ponzi scheme, which survives only because of Western and Gulf political commitment to, to the Egyptian government. If it weren't for that, if that were ever to slow down, maybe because of, say, concern over human rights abuses or whatever, uh, or just concern about the underlying economy, then the, this, this financial scheme through which Egypt is maintaining its balance of payments and its foreign currency reserves will start to fall apart. And that's when we look at a real crisis. Can I, sorry, I, um, it's Joran McCarthy here from the Asia Research Institute at uh, National University of Singapore. Um, I've been trying to jump in for a couple of minutes, but uh, I wasn't able to unmute myself. So sorry about that. Um, uh, I just had a question and, and wonderful to see you, Tuetue, and uh, always wonderful to, to see your uh, analysis and, and, um, and, and perspective on, on the situation in Myanmar. But um, my question was um, more for, for easy, actually, just to provide a bit of context. I work on um, Myanmar uh, political uh, and uh, military uh, dynamics and uh, especially work on uh, the commercial interests of the, the kind of rank and file of, of, of the Myanmar military. And um, uh, I had a question for Easy regarding kind of military enterprises in Egypt and Turkey and the degree to which their proceeds actually are shared uh, with the rank and file. Uh, who is benefiting from these companies? And this is you know, specifically a reason I ask this is that in the Myanmar context, it's really only those at the, the kind of upper uh, uh, ranks of the Myanmar military who really benefit from the shares and, and profits from these companies. And um, at a broader basis, actually many military rank and file families have their own private businesses separate to Myanmar military corporations. And this is part of a larger kind of push towards self-reliance within the Myanmar military and to get people off pensions and, and other state obligations in the 1990s and 2000s after the collapse of socialism. So you've got this intriguing dynamic now where actually many people at the rank and file in the Myanmar military, uh, the coup doesn't necessarily work in their interest because as, as Tweta has, has said, there's mounting boycotts of not just big military companies, but also you know, military you know, uh, families and their own, you know, companies selling within the community and, and, and those kinds of dynamics which are hitting them at a very micro level at a rank and file kind of perspective. So I, I suppose in terms of how these 
our conglomerates operate in an Egyptian and, and, and Turkish perspective? To what degree is it just the, the military as an institution, which is using these as off-budget sources of revenue, these companies, to finance, you know, weapons procurement and, and that kind of thing? And, and to what degree is actually the rank and file benefiting in terms of their, their hit pocket? Thanks. Is it, do you want to respond? Oh, I thought Twitter was might go first, but um, okay. Then just no, briefly, no, I'll no, touch. No, sorry. Well, let, let me let me. I'll tell you what, because I'm going to cut out for a moment to try and resolve my Zoom problem. Uh, um, but first, what I'll do is I'll just come in briefly on who benefits from the income. Um, that that bit of Gerard's question, and if you want me to address anything else, I'll come back later. Um, sure. In in Turkey. The, in, the military invests through its military pension fund. OYAK is the military pension fund and therefore all, not all benefits. I mean, there's shareholders and so on, uh, companies listed on the stock exchange, but the military's share of, of, of the income of profit uh, is used for, you know, according to uh, its own sort of pension system to increase pensions and help uh, various uh, services and benefits and so on. It is not used for items that normally come under the defense budget, such as weapons procurement or, you know, salaries or whatever. Uh, in Egypt, it's the opposite, where um, whether formally or informally, profits are shared, uh, well, among, especially among senior officers, this is done, it would appear in an informal way uh, or, or at best in accordance with statutes that are set by each military agency or company for itself. I mean, it's a very fascinating way of <laughs> regulating things that are formally registered. Um, what the military also does, however, because it brings in massive amounts of money from its public works and so on, uh, and there's no formal regulation for what happens with that income. Um, that goes into the so-called special funds, which many government agencies have. These are discretionary slush funds uh, by law, which they run for their, for their, for their own uses. The military must have a, quite a massive one, though we don't really know how much. This seems to be used for a number of things, from investing to launch new factories or companies, to uh, providing benefits and perks for especially the senior officer class. Uh, I don't think any of it percolates to lower ranks, except for those who, who are officially seconded to military companies where they then come under the military company's profit sharing scheme. Um, but otherwise the vast majority don't benefit. And finally, the, the army uh, retains, it's clear a lot of this money to finance uh, the construction of military facilities or of military purchases, some of the very large weapons purchases from France, Germany, Italy, and Russia of recent years, may, uh, may have to be funded by the army itself because uh, they've run out of external sources who would fund these purchases, uh, like say Saudi Arabia. And although they've tried to shift the cost onto people like say the French banks or Italian banks, it's not clear who'll pay the eventual bill. 
And it may be that the army is going to have to cover some of the cost itself, as well as paying costs for future spare parts and training and so on. So there's a huge murky area there. Um, and what we do know is that the official defense budget figures don't reflect, of course, the totality of actual defense spending, let alone actual defense funds. And we also can tell that the official defense budget is, has not changed over the years, despite massive increases in arms purchases. So some of this is definitely coming from uh, military income. I'm going to stop there, yeah. log out, and come back in. Yeah. Uh, okay, just... yeah if, you, if you do that, then uh, I think Hinitway wants, wants to answer. And then yes. I have a, a question um, okay. in the audience from yeah. Hinitway. I'll come back to Ahmed Chalabi's question, which I okay. want to connect to another question. Right. When now, he is yeah. I just want to reinforce what uh, Jared has uh, correctly pointed out, which is so true that um, the the rank and files don't have they they're not shared this um, the 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 military proceeds or the top uh, the the profits. So it's only very much concentrated at the top brass. So the rank and file, what they get is they they might be given some plantations to go and you know uh, uh, work on their own, maybe a small hotel or something to go and uh, work. So these people are actually not happy with the coup because those are working well for them. Now the CDM movement is really targeting them. So um, yeah, so it, it, I even heard that the, the, the former, the boss of uh, a slog, General Than Shui and the family, that's the rumor that they're not happy with this coup. And you can see that the, the coup is only by uh, General Mi online. So all these CDM movements are quite personalized. So they're just the one person because they, they feel that that's his decision, not the consultative, well-considered decision collectively by the military. So it's quite personalized just at the one, one person, which is the military general. So at the view is not shared collectively from what I can see quite clearly. Thank you. I see Yazid is back. So uh, be, uh, there's a question from Ahmed Chalabi, which I want to wrap up into a question that I have to both of you. And that's the whole concept of pension and the pension fund. So way at the very beginning, you um, in, early on in your presentation, you mentioned that pensions where one driver, why the military had developed a uh, um, an economic interest, and obviously the, the the pension fund, as the beneficiary owner of Oyak in Turkey, is 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 what what is the key driver of the economic of the military's economic interest, and so the question that arises from that is, in Myanmar if we were to get or when we were to get some sort of negotiation to try and get a transition, whether that's through ASEAN countries or through whatever mechanism, whether the bone that you, that you throw the military, if you wish, in a sense, is a, you know, a, 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 a commercial holding of investments that operates within a market uh, within a market economy, but ensures that the military can take care in terms of retired personnel or as in Turkey, fund clubs, uh, health insurance, whatever, 
that it does for 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 veterans and for uh, for for retired personnel. And in the same sense, the question then arises: if and when you um, you get to a situation where in Egypt is no longer sustainable, if indeed some sort of similar mechanism uh, were to be possible. And Yazid, I actually want to want to connect before I pose Ahmed's question, connect one more question to that, which is you described how, in effect, uh, Egypt is dependent on politically motivated uh, sovereign funding, basically. And if you go back to the early days of 2013 in Egypt, where you actually saw a move on the part of the UAE that didn't simply want to throw money into a black hole and actually had, they had a state minister based in Cairo, who it didn't all work out, but who essentially tried to rationalize and, 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 and streamline this kind of thing. And so the question is whether that could not come back, particularly in a, uh, in a COVID and post-COVID situation and a situation of course, where oil revenues going forward may look very different for the Gulf states. Now that all hooks up to the question that Ahmed Chalabi asked in a sense, which was if there's any hope in the near future that Egypt would become a civil state and uh, what it would take uh, for the army to give up its privilege. I don't know who, which of you wants, do you want to go first, Tidwe? And then yes. let you see. Yeah, so what you said about negotiated outcome, if the negotiation happens, you know, through Norway or ASEAN, but that's not the appetite that the resistance group has right now. So the resistance groups, you have CRPH, and they now talk about uh, federal army, so if they had their way, this is not their appetite. They want to, you know, abolish, you know, get, get rid of the army altogether. But if compromised can happen and can accept it, yes, that will be the restructured military conglomerates will, will be a, a way to go um, if the military accepts it. And that, that, that will be a way to go. So these are the pension funds. And because also the mentality is that they're the center of the country, they're the protector of the country. So I think pension fund will be fair, but also I would say that the top brass, I'm, I'm not sure that will be they'll be interested, you know, because the wealth is so much concentrated at the top, and maybe they don't also have an appetite for it. Yeah, I think before Yazid answers, you know, it strikes me that you're you're dealing with two interests in a sense. One is the interest of officers making a lot of money. The top, and, yes, and that's that's true in Egypt also. And, and ultimately that's what's going to be problematic. And the other is the institutional interest, mm. the need to take care of your people, where there, where there, where there may be some more compromise. Yazid, please go ahead. I think you need to unmute. Yeah. Thank, thanks, James. Um, could you repeat Ahmed Chalabi's question very quickly? Sure, Ahmed's question was whether there was any hope in the near future for mm. Egypt to become a civil state. So that's what I, yeah. 
what it would take for the military to surrender its privilege. Yeah, yeah. I'll, right, I'll sort of try and connect the two questions. Um, first, let me, I'll, I'll mention that I'm uh, actually going to be working this summer on a new paper um, that focuses on recommendations for dealing with the Egyptian military economy. So as to, because I wrote this massive report just over a year ago to, uh, that, that offered an, an anatomy of that economy, looking at all its distinct parts and the sort of reasons for each part and how they function and so on. So my next step Which, is to say- What I recommend to the audience is not, and it's on the Carnegie Middle East Center right. website. Great, thanks. Um, I'm referring to it simply to say that I want to go from that to, I mean, to use that wealth of knowledge in order to try and develop a carefully tailored uh, approach to what would you change if you could, if there's political will, uh, which bits might be viable and could be left in place or should be handed over to civilians, which should be dismantled completely, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I will be coming to this issue uh, in the future and I'm already starting to think about it. Um, sadly, my first comment there is that there is absolutely no prospect of the military changing anything in what it's doing at the moment. It's on an upward trajectory uh, in terms of it's sort of, you know, well into a strong upward curve of intervention, of involvement, of profit making. And this is not, and, and this is very much a part of the president's overall approach. Sisi openly speaks of the Egyptian state as being incompetent, inefficient, and corrupt. Um, it's got, you know, 6 million people. That's maybe 30 million people in Egypt who relied directly on a family member who, you know, is employed by the state. In other words, 30% of the population, at least, if not much more. Um, and what Sisi is doing is he's using the military to implement economic plans, infrastructure plans, um, poverty alleviation campaigns, almost everything that he con is concerned about, he runs through the military to run around the state and run around government regulations. All the th activities he assigns to the military and things like the Sovereign Wealth Fund and other uh, social economic development funds that he's setting up under his direct control are exempted from uh, applying government regulations. This is crucial. So he's creating a parallel state in a way. So it's not just that the military are, you know, still in a phase of onward momentum, which they're not, you know, not yet ready to pull back, but it's that everything Sisi is doing is pushing forward across all fronts and the military is a part of that, central to that picture. So we're, we're looking at a phase of, if you like, a new phase of state building in Egypt that is quite unique. And so touching a little bit on uh, the point that James very rightly made about the United Arab Emirates and their role, they, the, the Emirates have been clear, true, that they, they weren't just going to pour money in uh, into, a, into a black hole as they did in the 1970s. Um, and they've been insisting on return on investment, but the return is political and not just financial. Um, what we have seen is that over the past two or so years, Gulf investment in Egypt has reduced a lot, uh, or at least let's say the politically motivated assistance has reduced. There continues to be investment in big projects, especially run by the army, like big land reclamation and agriculture schemes, 
um, and real estate schemes, but the proportion has declined. What Egypt has shown is that it will take the money from whoever, it will not take the advice. There's a wonderful book by the former director at the World Bank of the Egypt Department, Khalid Ikram. He's got two books, in fact, on Egypt, wonderful ones, and quite recent, which tell the story of just how nothing the World Bank did with Egypt was ever really taken on board, partly because the US used to go behind the scenes and tell the Europeans and the World Bank and the IMF to ease off on Egypt and to allow Egypt to do whatever it was that the World Bank and others had been trying to stop it doing. So in this context, um, there is no international support for any of the kinds of changes, whether in politics, human rights, or even in free market economy uh, terms for what needs to be done in Egypt. I mean, the huge irony is that the World Bank, IMF, the UK, EU, US will sit with Egyptians who are actively restoring the role of the state in ownership, squeezing out the private sector, competing with it for credit, uh, say in banks and so on. And at the same time, they'll happily you know, applaud Egypt's free market economy. Um, so the prospect for a civil state, to come back to Ahmed Chalabi's question, is extremely low. Um, the Egyptian state today has gone from the repressive state of Abdel Nasser in the 1960s to the crony but rather tolerant uh, uh, repressive state of Hosni Mubarak, which was overthrown 10 years ago, to something that is fiercer and more brutal than anything Egypt has ever seen before. This is a, a government that is exercising repression on a very heavy scale and bringing to bear, of course, IT technology, thanks to Chinese and European surveillance technology and eavesdropping software and so on. And finally, I mean, one example there is that, and this was a contrast I shared with Freitway the other day, that in one day after the military coup in Egypt, the military killed between 850 and 1200 protesters in one day uh, with, with no accountability, no investigation, nothing. And, and no serious uh, consequences in terms of you know, Western support. So the prospects for a civil state are extremely poor because uh, as long as Egypt's macroeconomic indicators show growth and good foreign currency reserves and so on, there's gonna be a very strong narrative of Egypt, the success story, being a great place to put your money uh, with little investigation on what happens in the real economy and the fact that poverty has shot up massively. The World Bank itself, uh, you know, last year said that uh, something like 70% of the entire population are either in poverty or vulnerable. This is a huge increase. And this is the result of the kind of policies that this government is pursuing, which is investing massively, mainly using external debt and domestic borrowing in very fancy fantasy uh, real estate complexes, steel and glass skyscrapers and theme parks modeled on Dubai uh, for the upper middle class, which is shrinking uh, sort of by the day in Egypt. It's a huge gamble and it'll last for the next decade, I think. But any big global shock is going to really knock the pillars away from underneath this and the gamble will be exposed. I hope it doesn't happen just for this because that'll lead to, to a real meltdown that no one can cope with. Uh, but, but equally, it's not a viable uh, trajectory either. 
Thank you. Um, before I pass on a question by Anok Ang to Hitzwe, I do want to really urge people and the uh, participants to come forward with questions and, and comments. We really would appreciate your, your input in what is to a degree some uh, uncharted ground and where we all can, can contribute. Uh, Hitzwe, Anok Chang asks whether you could comment on the role of crony companies that or what role crony companies may be able to play in resolving the conflict in Myanmar. Uh, the, the second question that Anohang poses is, what about the Myanmar diaspora and corporate entities in countries like Singapore, Thailand, Australia? Would they be capable of bridging the, beleaguer, the gap between the beleaguered military and the populace? <laughs> Please. Yes, so the, what was the first question? Sorry, you was, I, yeah, though the first question was whether crony companies can ah, play a yeah. role in resolving yes. the conflict in Myanmar. Okay, so the crony companies, you know, during last eight, nine, five years at least, have grown away from the military. They had their own empires, which are independent of the 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 military. So they so our hypothesis is that cronyism, cronies are becoming, started to become oligarchs you know, in their own rights. So when this coup happened, my thought was, oh, cronies not gonna be happy about this. And um, then you started to see one or two being targeted by the military because um, this crony, particular crony is fairly popular, you know, uh, are fairly sympathetic to, uh, a, to the anti-coup uh, dem demonstrators. And uh, so I, I heard that he is now under, has been detained and then be questioned. So I don't think that the cronies would like to see this happen because they're just about to perhaps internationalize. And also a lot of them in 2016 came off the blacklist of the United States. So they're now you know, free, free to fly. And then this happens um, at the wrong time for them. So, I mean, they, they don't really have a political role, but they have the economic role. So this rumors is that this per a crony that been detained, perhaps they wanted him for money, not for information. So, um, yes, they don't really have a political power, and and I would say they will just play whichever in the government as well. So, but but of course, for their growth and for internationalization, this has been negative for their uh, uh, growth. Yeah, I think, and Enoch had a second question, which was the role of the diaspora as well as whether corporates in places like Singapore, Thailand, Australia that have an economic interest in Myanmar, whether or not they can uh, play a role in resolving issues. Yes, yeah, so the, the geopolitical side of Myanmar is complicated. So it's further complicated by, you know, China and, and the United States, um, uh, you know, have a have a, a interest in in the country so that that really plays a complicated role but for the overseas um overseas diaspora fiercely they're supporting cdm movement now crph social punishment so when the social punishment movement came in 
then the diaspora suddenly had a, a, a quite an active role and uh, oh, social media very actively targeting, identifying, targeting, promoting, you know, a, a, a vaguely, even vaguely military links people to be targeted. Um, but as to political role, I don't think they have any. And Singapore, of course, can do more in terms of the banking as a banking hub. So if you target the money trail, chase the money trail of the military companies and their associates, their cronies, that's where Singapore can play a huge role to hurt the, the, the financial interests of the military. Um, before I come to a question by Adraj Anand for Hitwe, one of I want to pick up on what Hitwe said, and also one of the last things that Yazid said, which strikes me that in the current situation, one of the crucial differences between Myanmar and and Egypt, and maybe in some ways a potentially decisive uh, difference, is the fact that in Myanmar you actually have. Um, at least parts of the international community, the West, engaged in opposing the uh, uh, the military regime, whether one thinks it's sufficient or not, being neither here nor there. Whereas in the question of in the in in, in the situation that Yazid describes, the Egyptians don't really have to worry because no one's concerned. Would that be a right conclusion? Yes, so Myanmar, uh, I would say because of the image of Do Aung San Suu Kyi, especially in contrast to the, the generals, you know, in their uniforms and um, not much knowing the international norms, you know, PR. So in, in the contrast, I think it has grabbed the attention of the world. And also around the democratic change, you know, 2011, 2012, the visit of Obama and then Hillary Clinton, I think that has also, um, you know, popularized the uh, uh, Myanmar. And uh, when a US sanction lifted east and the foreign investment came in and they knew, the Western businesses knew that all the eyes are on them to do responsible business. So I think it's on the world stage for these reasons. So Myanmar is, is in a, has been watched, you know, for their uh, foreign direct investment to be very clean, you know, to be, to, to do the good thing. Thank you. Do you want to add anything here, Sid? No, I think not, not in this. I mean, I. Yeah, I, I'd rather hear more from your audience. Fair enough. Okay, um, we have a question from Adraj Anand, and this may be the last question, unfortunately, but he's asking Hitwe, in Myanmar, what might a negotiated outcome look like? Under what circumstances exactly would the military compromise with the civil dis disobedience movement and NLD as far as its business interests are concerned? Okay, it, for now, for now, military doesn't look like it wants to compromise at all. So because the violence attack is every day increasing. Um, 
so maybe Chinese government can play a role here in, in bringing the two parties together. But the other side is also now um, quite strong in their condemnation of the military. So I, I don't think these negotiations is going to happen any anytime soon. So that that that's a worry as well. So I think it's going to go ahead with the, the fight rather than the negotiated outcome. And also there has been a, a bit of um, a speculation that if, if the Aung San Suu Kyi is released, will she then um, will not want the violence that looks like looming, looming violence because of the um, federal army forming and um, you know the, 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 the ammunitions and all that perhaps from the militia that's a possibility as well. So there were not there has been some concern that will she say violence is not in order? Um, so I think people are going ahead, pushing ahead with this, you know, the, the, the military attack rather than looking at other solutions. That's also because I don't think military wants to negotiate. Um, maybe more pressure is needed for them to come down and negotiate. No, no indication of that so far. If, if I can take that question one step further, and that is, you know, you're seeing indications very early that Myanmar could turn into a situation where you have an armed resistance. And one would assume that as that's one scenario that ASEAN really does not want to see. So no. the question is, the question is whether that, in a sense, would be the icebreaker. Yeah, because even in ASEAN, the, the democracies like Indonesia, um, even uh, Korea, I think they are showing strong condemnation. They are showing. So ASEAN is not also, um, you know, has been some differences in opinion of um, uh, tackling the regime. So there, there, there might be some, some hope here, but as the biggest investors like Singapore, China could play a, a bigger role and, and the military thinking is also they look looks like they don't mind their economic interest affected so long as they have this political power and then they'll fix it later. And you know, it might be very bad for the ordinary people of the country, but for the top brass, probably will not mind. So, so you know, so long as they have this political power and you know ruined economy they'll preside over it and perhaps uh, try to fix it down the track not very uh, uh, of a priority top priority it, it, I don't think it, it is at the moment from what I can observe okay um, we're unfortunately coming to the end of this don't just leave yet uh, first of all I do want to thank uh, Hitwe and Yezid well, I, for what I think, and I hope was for them as well as for others in the audience, uh, a really productive session in terms of food for thought, and really raising the raising some 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 very basic questions about how you deal. And, and yes, he mentioned he's starting to think about these things with regard to Egypt. You know, how do you 
get out of these quagmires in terms of the economic uh, role of the military, uh, which I think is may something that may be worthwhile talking about further, maybe a, in, initially in a smaller circle in terms of trying to, to learn the lessons from the comparisons and the differences. Uh, before we end, the or organizers have asked me uh, if uh, they wanted, if you would stay for a couple of seconds because they want to do a screenshot of the speakers. In any yes. case, thank you all for participating. I hope this was as useful to you as I found it. Uh, and I would uh, welcome you to stay in touch with MEI, visit the MEI website for our future events, of which there are many and equally fascinating. Thank you very much.